Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. What's up, church? How are we? Good to be with you all this morning, for sure. Uh, Like Katie said, I see some new faces in the room. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, uh, I would love to give you a high five or dap you up after service, like she said. I don't know if you caught that. That was sly. If you don't know what that means, we can just hug it out and say good morning, like regular people, you know? That's good. Are we good? Are we ready? We are embarking on a six-week series starting today that we're just simply calling The Birds and the Bees. And yes, we are talking about the birds and the bees, everybody. Uh, We are talking about God's design for sex and sexuality over the next six weeks together. And so my first disclaimer, what I want you parents to know especially, is that uh, I come to this series as a parent, um, not, not first and foremost, but one of the primary things that I bring into this space is my parenting. And we have, Kate and I have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And one of the phrases that came up as we prepared for this series over the last year was that we, from this pulpit, don't want to rob conversations that belong to you, parents. So I just want to make that clear on the front end of this, that we have, we have decided that these, this series is probably rated PG-13, as the Bible in some scenes is rated PG-13. And so I want to invite you right now, parents, if you are in this room and you have uh, preschoolers, if you have elementary schoolers, even if you have some young middle schoolers, we have made spaces for all of those people to uh, f- belong in other areas of our church so that they're not in this room. We had you in mind as we built out this series. That's my first thing that I want to acknowledge. Um, the second thing, so you can actually go out. We have team in the hallway right now that'll be ready to kind of meet you and direct you. Um, we, we have team on the way into the hall right now to meet you and direct you if you need them. Um, but the, uh, the other thing I want you to know is, is I need everyone, if we have a couple ground rules for this series as we um, do this together, my first would be that we are all listening for ourselves first. I know there's probably so much that we could learn for somebody else that we know or somebody else that we care deeply about who's not in this room, uh, but spouses especially, you're going to keep your elbows in the upright and locked position during this series, all right? Um, we are listening to receive for us primarily because that is how the Spirit of God works in us. We can't be the Holy Spirit for somebody else. And so as we're in this room gathered together, what we are wanting to do is we're wanting to say, come Lord Jesus, help me first. The second thing that we're going to tackle is that we are going to look at this series uh, forward. We're going to look forward. We're not going to come into this room filled with shame. If the enemy is trying to cripple you and pummel you down with past decisions that you've made, past regret and images that you can't get out of your mind or decisions that you wish you never made, we are coming today believing that God makes all things new and that he's in the business of doing a new thing. I I know that what this series is going to do is it's going to touch on the most tender parts of our humanity there are things that you bring into this room. There are stories that are brought into this room by everyone. And not everyone has the same story as Katie and I, married at 20, married to the same wife for the last 12 years. And gosh, like we're still pretty happy. Praise the Lord, you know? I know that's not the experience of everyone sitting in this room, but the invitation for everyone sitting in this room is to let God do his powerful work in doing a new thing, healing and restoring, bringing reconciliation and restoration to the most hurt parts of your soul. And so those are the couple ground rules that we're bringing in here with us today. Um, I'm gonna pray and then we will jump right into it this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, wow, we need you. Holy Spirit, would you come? Come and give me the words that you want to have spoken today, Lord, and every week of this series. 
God, I'm an infallible, or I'm a, I'm a fallible person. You are infallible. You're perfect. I'm not perfect. And so we come to you today in humility, just asking God that your will would be done and would you be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, birds and the bees, we're talking Christian sexuality. Where do you begin in a topic like this? Let's maybe start with why. Why do this topic? Um, I'll tell you, as we started to kind of let the lead out that we were doing this series, you know, we started to say probably about six months ago, hey, in the springtime, we have this series, it's coming. There was just a little bit of buzz that we picked up on. And I couldn't help but notice at every, every turn, when I had coffee with somebody, when I had lunch with somebody, they said, hey, I'm so relieved you're doing this series. And it was, it was related to one of two things. Either I personally have walked through such brokenness when it comes to this topic. I'm so eager to hear what you have to say. Or it was, I am in such close proximity with this person that I care so deeply about. I just don't know how to walk with them in grace and truth. Sometimes grace is easy to the point where I fold and I don't, I don't hold to my convictions. Sometimes truth is too easy and I feel like I'm just beating people down with the Bible. But help me be like Jesus and walk in grace and truth. And so that was the refrain that I just kept hearing from person after person sitting next to you today is that we need some help with this topic. The other thing that happened just in the meantime, just to give me a story, I think, to tee this up perfectly. It, it was probably about six or seven months ago, uh, Katie and I had uh, an open Friday night, which praise the Lord for open Friday nights. Parents, am I right? Golly, it's just so nice. So we're going to take the kids out to the movie. We look up the films that are in the movie theater and, and lo and behold, Buzz Lightyear is kind of like the kid movie. Lightyear is just what it's called, right? The Disney movie Lightyear. So I, I, I'm sure you have some context. I know the audience that I'm preaching to, but we got on plugged in, like a lot of parents, have any plugged in warriors just out there in right there? Yeah, come on. You should look it up if you don't. Um, but we're like, okay, what's the, what's the violent content? What's the spiritual content? What's the sexual content of this film, right? And lo and behold, in Lightyear, I'm sure you've heard about this already, there is a scene where Buzz's co-pilots, moms, embrace and kiss. And so I'm coming to that as a parent going, okay, we've done some pretty good groundwork with our 10-year-old. We've had some conversation there. I think we can talk through this and explain through this what this means and what we think. And I think we could even get there with our eight-year-old. But for the four-year-old, I'm just tired of the subliminal peppering that culture is doing all the time and the messaging that is always getting worked in when it comes to this topic. And I'm, I'm wondering if as the church, we've let culture steer a conversation that could be driven by the church. And so we decide, and that night, you know, wisdom would have it, we're not gonna go see the movie. Instead, we're gonna go to our favorite place in town, which I'm sure you've know this already because you've been here before, but Vatos Tacos is where we're gonna go have some dinner, right? So we decide to venture over to Vato's Tacos and lo and behold, we get in line behind a gay couple in line. Two men holding hands, being very affectionate and passionate with one another. And who is the first person in my family to point out that these two boys are in love? Our four-year-old. One of those where you just go, Lord, what are you doing? I thought you gave us wisdom. Seems like we went somewhere else. Did you do that just so that I'd have a point to preach in this sermon? He maybe did, okay? I would not put that past him. Here's my point. Culture is pressing this conversation into our laps all the more. And again, I just wonder if we have, as a church, not just this church, I'm talking about the church in America, have we maybe folded to letting culture steer a conversation with its values, steer a conversation with what it says is right? When we as the church, we know how this should be driven. We know that God has some things to say on this topic. And yet the question still kind of rises in my heart. How did we get here? How did we end up getting here as a church? 
And it would be very easy for me to kind of open up this series with just a haymaker at the darkness of culture and what culture is doing these days. But I'm not interested in starting there today. What I'm most interested in starting is asking the question, how did we get here as a church? Again, not this church, as the people of God, as the church in Western America, how did we end up here where it almost feels like this topic when it comes to church and it comes to the pulpit has somehow become taboo. It feels foreign to mention this topic in churches and in pulpits everywhere. It feels like we almost shouldn't be reading a whole book in the Bible called Song of Solomon that embarks to follow King Solomon on his courtship, uh, engagement, marriage, wedding night of his Shulamite bride. How, how is it that we've come to this point where it feels like that book, it almost shouldn't even be read. It should be taboo. And I, I just, I'm interested in looking first at how the church arrived at a spot where now today evangelicals are almost as split as ever on, on what God's design for marriage is, what God's intent for sex and sexuality means. And we've arrived at this point where now there are, there are churches and there are pulpits that arrive at completely different places than how we're going to land in this series. And it, you have to ask the question, how did we, how did we get here? And so I, I want to embark on maybe just a little history, which I know sounds dull, but I think it's important. Because I think somewhere around 20, 30, 40 years ago, there began what was called the emerging church movement. And the emerging church movement, really uh, on the piggyback of postmodern philosophy, so postmodernism, the world that we're living in, the, the philosophical wind that is now blowing through our country right now, really just wants to take any broad narrative, any long-standing story, and it wants to poke holes in it and ask some questions. Uh, and I can empathize with that to some level, but, but on a ma- in a major way, what they're starting to do is they're starting to rot out how, we, how do we know what we know, right? If we just talk about how we think about things, how we arrive at conclusions, how we for a long time have uh, observed certain things to be true, they're just going like, yeah, but do we really understand and know what truth is? That is like, that is the postmodern mantra is just to ask some big, broad question, poke some hole in some thought that has existed for a long, long time and to go, yeah, but can we really be sure? And that, that is, the, that, I mean, we understand that that's the cultural air we're living in. That's how we have elevated now your truth above the truth. That's how we've elevated your experience and the things that you feel. And now becomes the, like the dogmatic view of the world around you now has to adhere to your feelings. That, that's where we live. And out of that comes the emergent church movement. And the emergent church gets really good at just asking questions, but not giving good answers. Is Jesus really the way? Isn't, isn't Jesus dying on the cross? Isn't that kind of just like spiritual uh, child abuse with God the Father sending the Son, killing him on a cross? It asks these big, broad questions without letting us sink our teeth into what is really true. And so I think in some ways, what the emerging church movement does, it, it, it pokes holes in all these theological questions that we've already had answers to for a thousand plus years. You think about this for just a moment. The church exists in, let's just, let's just reduce it over simply to Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, Protestant churches. Of the Protestant stream, there's probably upwards of 30,000 denominations. And those 30,000 denominations, along with Catholics, along with Lutherans, they've disagreed on just about everything. But you know what they've held true to over, until the last 200 years? Sex and sexuality and the definition of biblical marriage. There's been unity on that topic. So we've had things defined. We've had truth articulated. And now all of a sudden the emerging church movement goes, yeah, but can we, sh- can we be sure? Uh, do we really think 
that archaic, outdated approach to understanding God is still fit for today? And again, listen to me, I, I empathize with it because at the heart of what they were asking is they were going, man, our, our country is moving away from church rapidly and we need to figure out how we can get people reinterested in God again. And listen, I, th I think that is a good, right question to ask. But then the practice that was born from that built churches out of the attractional church movement, the seeker church movement, where it said, no, 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 we're going to put the lost people at the center of the preaching and the programming of everything that the church does. And when you do that, what you're inevitably doing is you are catering to what's happening in culture rather than standing for what you know to be true. And so this is, this is just the movement that has happened over the last several years. And, and it is unraveling, feels like somewhat quickly, isn't it? And what we have to understand, I just, I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. If you're in need of a good quote, you probably are going to need to find somebody who's already dead. So G.K. Chesterton is an apologist that lives, in, he lived in the 1800s and the 1900s. And he says this, merely having an open mind is nothing. Thanks, G.K. Like, I don't know if I could have put it that bluntly myself. Having an open mind, asking questions, it means nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. The point of asking questions, and I think everyone has to go through this from, from the eight-year-olds in the building right now to the 13-year-olds who have some questions about God. You have to ask some questions, but it's not just to always ask questions. It's to sink your teeth into something real, into something true. And so here's, here's my first point. You can write this down if you're taking notes. As the church, we need to know when to have questions and we need to know when to have conclusions. This is important. We need to know as the people of God, when to ask questions, but just as important as that, probably more important than that, we need to know when to already have conclusions. Because this, the church has stood on things, the church historic has stood on things for the past 1,800, 2,000 years and we have it documented, we have it written down. We have creeds that have been born to really anchor people in what their faith is and what it means. And there are, in, when it comes to theology, the way that we think or study of God, there are things that are in the closed hand of Christian doctrine, which means if you don't believe these things, you are not a Christian. There are things that are in that closed hand. The doctrine of the atoning work of Christ that you are saved by grace through faith, by his righteousness alone, because of his blood on the cross. If you come to him in faith, that's how you're saved. The deity of Christ, the fact that he is not created after God, but he is begotten from the Father, as the Nicene Creed puts it. That he has existed co-eternally with the Father. God's triune nature is not to be messed with at this point. He exists as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. And if you have questions about how those three persons are one being, join the club but I also don't want to follow a God that I can fully understand because my brain's three and a half pounds and he's an eternal. God's triune in his nature. Heaven and hell are real places. The church universal is a, is a family in which we're called to belong to. These are doctrines that are closed hand for theology. We don't question them. Then we come to a place where we have open-handed issues. Are the gifts of the spirit still for today or did they close with the last um, workings of the apostles? Listen, like, I, I believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue for today. That should be no surprise if you're attending church here. But I would never call another person teaching that the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit closed at the time of the apostles. I wouldn't call him a heretic. I'd call him a brother in error. And those are different. Those are vastly different. If some other guy wants to baptize by sprinkling their baby with water, 
And I'm going to say, no, 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 it's, it's by immersion. That's how the Bible paints that picture. If you want to talk about whether the kind of music we should sing, the kind, of, the kind of styles of leadership we should have, church governments, church polity, all of those things, brothers and sisters, they're in the open hand of theology. And so listen, we can put it this way. Um, the church is like a nation, okay? And, and within that nation, we all re- relate to one another as Christians, even our Catholic, Lutheran, other Protestant brothers that don't line up on all these beliefs that we have in the same way. But we would say they're all part of the Christian family, but the people who believe differently, they're, they're of another country. If you're not going to believe that Jesus is who he says he was, you don't belong in the nation of Christianity, okay? But what we have is we have all these different states then. And yeah, like, and yeah, the Wesleyans don't think about things the same way we do. And now they do the Methodists and now they do all Protestants. I'm guessing not all of you are Reformed. Some of you are Reformed in your soteriology, the way that you think about salvation. But some of you are much more aligned towards free will. That's okay. We're all start, part of the same family, but we can all belong in kind of these different states Listen, I know it's kind of a bad analogy because you're like, yeah, but it's California. Like, are we really still saying that they're part of the union at this point? Like, and I'm like, hey, maybe, let's keep our eye on it, okay? Maybe they're going to drift away. But right now, yes, they may think about things differently. They believe some things differently than us, but we're Christians. Church, you have to know, this is the quote from St. Augustine. And again, this is even older than GK, right? In essentials, unity. In the doctrine of Jesus and the doctrines of the word of God and the teachings that the, that the, if you just look down the apostles creed, if you just look through the Nicene creed, those things close hand. We're not debating. We're not asking questions. That is what Christianity is in essentials in those unity, but in non-essentials liberty, we're not going to call people a heretic who don't believe the exact thing about us is baptism, right? So we're going to have liberty towards those people. And then in the peripheral things, like if we should sit in pews or chairs or if we should listen to Bethel music or not, in those things, charity. Like we're gonna have charity towards one another, right? Here's, here's why I bring this up. Because the one closed hand issue that we're gonna talk about for the rest of our time together today is the one that matters most, I believe, in this topic. And that is the inerrancy of the scriptures, okay? That the Bible is the authoritative, trustworthy word of God. Now listen, I... I know several of you, you've come to this church because you were going to a church in town and they had abandoned their allegiance to the Bible. Frankly, and listen, as a pastor, as a parent, as just a person, I get the appeal to want to win people to Christ, but it can never come at the compromising of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It is useful. It is helpful for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. You could also say woman of God, okay? The man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's the encouragement right here? Is that like we can learn some things about the Bible that are meant to help us. So here's a few things about the Bible. Really quick, really quick. The Bible, first and foremost, it is inerrant. It is the inerrant word of God. Therefore, it is trustworthy. Okay, here's here's something really fun. Who has like an ESV Bible that's close to me? Taylor, you didn't do this first service. It's great. Go to Matthew 18, 11. Matthew 18, 11. Okay, while he's turning there, I think we have a misunderstanding in the church today about what inerrancy of scripture means. So you know, that what the Holy Scriptures are, the the book, the Bible, this one right here, what it is, is like Paul wrote his letters to Corinth. He wrote his letters to the book in the church in Colossae. He wrote to the Ephesian church. And how many of you like, you're at least honest enough to know 
man, okay, Paul didn't like write this. And then Joe, the head deacon in the church of Ephesus, right? Was like, hey, get that letter from Paul onto the Xerox machine and start spreading it around to the church everywhere. Like that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> that we weren't there. The printing press wasn't made yet. Like we were doing handwritten things. Most things were passed down orally. But then we have these writings, these manuscripts. And what happens is, as soon as it hits a church or it hits a region, now all of a sudden there's gonna be scribes and there's gonna be maybe hundreds of them looking at one document and they're gonna start rewriting what's in that letter. So looking at it, writing it down, looking at it, writing it down. It'd be like if I passed out my sermon notes to all of you today. And I just said, hey, copy these with your hands, pass it out to somebody. Now, what happens is Matthew 18, 11, what happens? It's not there. Do you know that? That's one of about 20 examples that we could use from the New Testament. Where, is there a Matthew 18, 10? And there's a Matthew 18, 12. What happened to 11? I didn't pick just the end of a chapter. It's missing. What, and now there's a footnote in your Bible that's gonna say, some manuscripts don't contain this. And listen to me, I bring that up to tell you, it's okay, it's okay. There are textual variances in the ways that our Bible was passed down. But here's what we know. In all matters of doctrine and of, and of truth, it's, it's pure. The textual variances that occur are, are spelling errors. They're, they're grammatical differences. This guy said the turn of phrase this way. This guy said the turn of phrase this way. But the meaning is unchanged. The Bible, as studied as a historical document alone, not as the inerrant word of God, not by Christian scholars, the Bible is considered the most, the most historically integrous document that has ever existed. We have so many copies of the early manuscripts. It was not uh, just translated into this language, into this language, into this language, in some game of Bible telephone. And now we finally arrived at the point where in 1970, we included the word homosexual in the first time in your Bible in the NIV. That's true. There was a lawsuit filed for damages. We'll talk more about that later. But that word was not just wrongly used. It was accurately used based on the Greek word that Paul used back in the day because Paul himself made up a new word. Here's why I point that out. Because there's some TikTok uh, just theologian out there who's just critiquing and he's saying, can you really trust the Bible? Did you know that these errors exist in your Bible? Can you really, is it really trustworthy? Is it really true? Inerrancy does not mean that it was just always copied down perfectly, but in every instance, every instance, put your heart at ease. Anytime there is, an, is a variance in how scripture was copied down, it is in peripheral issues that do not matter to doctrine at all, at all. And so we, can, we know that the Bible is trustworthy. When we say the Bible is inerrant, what we're saying is the teaching is always right. Hear me again. The teaching, the ways that it tells us about the human experience are always right. And they always will be right. Even a few thousand years from now, when we're all like Wally style on some spaceship, right? Sitting in some chair, 500 pounds, can't move. You know what I mean? You seen Wally? You should see Wally. It's a great movie. Anyways, <laughs> even then, we will not have progressed past the teaching of the Bible because it will still be right. It will still be true. It will still be profitable. It will still be helpful. The Bible is the word of God. It is trustworthy and it's true. The Bible's also authoritative. The Bible's also authoritative. So it was, it was inspired by God himself. And God's smarter than you. As humbly as I can say it. He's just been around a lot longer. He's seen some stuff. He's never learned anything because he already knows it all. He's just better than you. He is. 
And we have to be careful that when we read the Bible, we don't read our own emotional story or our own experiences. Because listen, you, you have a way that you were formed, the household you grew up in, the, the way that politics were ran in your house, the way that you were designed and bred to think. Like you have a certain context that you bring into scripture, but every time we read this book, hear me, it is authoritative. I am not the authority figure when it comes to this book. No, no, no. I'm, even as a pastor, as a preacher, I'm only as authoritative as I am loyal to what this book says. So hear that out of pulpits. You don't have to follow just what any pastor said. You want to know how spiritual abuse, spiritual manipulation, how all that stuff happens? It's because you believe a pastor, not the truth. And so a pastor is only as authority, is only granted authority in which he is loyal to the truth. The Bible's the authority. So all of my little peon opinions about whatever, they get, to brought in, they get to be brought under the filter of this book. What does this say? On my best day up here, I'm simply exposing the truth of what this already says. I'm not inserting some new novel idea for you. The Bible is authoritative. It is, it is breathed out by God. That does not mean that the writers of scripture were sort of caught in this Holy Spirit trans, Holy Spirit grabbed their arm and they started just, you know, writing it out all for them. No, but it means they were in perfect union with what God wanted to say. And as, and as, as time went, as the, as the eyewitnesses of Jesus, as they died, the, that first thing, the, the churches got together and they canonized scripture. They said, no, this is our book. These are our holy scriptures. The Old Testament had already been set for a long time. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus. Then there was Paul who wrote a bunch of encouragements to the church. And then there were some other things that were included from Peter and from John. And what we did was we said, no, this is it. It's not changing. We're not adding to scripture. We're not taking away from scripture. This is our book. This is the Holy Scripture. It is the authority that we hold ourselves accountable to. So it's not just that it's inerrant. It's not just that it's God's authority. It also says there in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy that it's helpful. It's helpful. It's beneficial and profitable to the human experience. So listen to me. The Bible is designed to help you. It doesn't always feel like that, but it is trying to lead you towards life, not away from it. Now, are there some things that you might consider fun? Some things that might be considered a good time that it's going to say, nope, but your flesh is going to want to say, yes, absolutely, it's going to happen. But the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want what the book wants? Look at Psalm 119, 160 says the sum of your, not sum of your word, S-O-M-E, the sum, the total of your word, God, is truth. How do we know what's true in today's day and age? Well, we know it's the sum of God's word. That is what is most true. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So, so throw out the sermon that's based on a half of a proverb from Eugene Peterson's paraphrased version, the message. The message is great, helps you read stuff. But if a sermon is kind of anchored on one half of one proverb that some other guy commented on, no, that's not helpful for transformation. That's not profitable to our human experience. No, I need to know what the book says so that it might help me. I need help. The sum of your word is truth. Psalm 119, take not the word utterly out of my mouth. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. The hope for human beings is in the rules that God has established for us. Psalm, 1, Psalm 16, 16 verse A, the lines. This is David reflecting on the law. Like I know you do. I know you just like meditate on, on that part of Exodus and that part of Leviticus that we all love to read, especially Caden apparently, right? I know you're just meditating on it. But when, 
when David is writing almost like this love song to the word of God, to the rules of God, he says, God, the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's like, thank you for putting this fence here. Thank you for putting that fence there. It is leading me into life. Listen, before we dive into the topic of sex and sexuality, you have to ask yourself the question, do you want what God wants or do you want what you want from this series? Please, everyone, don't just, don't just say yes because you have behaviors. You have patterns of thinking that are going to be confronted with scripture. And scripture is going to say one thing, but you're going to feel something different. And I'm just, I'm here to ask you before we even embark on the journey together. Do you want what the Bible has to say or do you not? Because the Bible's perfect. It's inerrant. It is, it's teaching is always going to be right. It has the authority of God in it. And it's going to be helpful for your life. I'm not trying to lay down this heavy warning that you're gonna have to change everything, but maybe you will. Maybe you're going to have to confess something that your world's going to get a little rocky for a little bit, but it's going to be to help you. Maybe you're going to have to kind of out some historic thing that you're trying to sit on. You're just trying to take with you to your grave. You're hoping never, someone never finds out about you, but the Bible's going to bid you to confess something to somebody else. And I'm just here to say, if that's what God wants to do, then he's trying to lead you to life. He's trying to help. So if we frame ourselves there, and if we start with the Bible being the word that we're going to use to inform our opinions on this, then what does it have to say regarding sex and sexuality? That's the question now. What does the Bible have to say? And over the next six weeks, listen, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the Bible today. We're gonna talk about God's vision for sex. We're gonna talk about the wedding night of Song of Solomon next week, everybody. So dudes, like Super Bowl, not important, next week. Church is more important next week, I promise you, okay? We're gonna come, we're gonna come to the, the counterfeits that culture is trying to offer us when it comes to sex and sexuality. We're gonna ask ourselves the question, how am I being formed as a person, as a human living in this sexualized world? Because it, it, listen to me, it does not matter if you're married or dating or divorced or widowed, every single person has to be confronted with this issue at some point. We all have to talk about it. We are all sexual beings that are trying to live under the banner and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we have to, we have to talk about it. It's for everyone. We're also gonna ask the question as we wind this series down, finally, we're gonna say, how in the world do I walk like Jesus walked full of grace and truth? How do I love people well who don't think like me, who, who don't behave like I behave, who don't behave like I want them to behave? How do I love them well and give them truth, but also simultaneously be full of grace? So that's where we're going over the next several weeks. But for today, what does the Bible say about sex? Well, here we go. Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 27. Um, there is this beautiful poem that's unfolding in the Hebrew that we can't really appreciate in English because let's be honest, English, just not that awesome of a language. It's just not. I love, I love tacos. You love tacos? I love my wife. Do I mean the same thing? I don't know. You figure it out. English is not that great. Okay? But in Hebrew, what's happening in the creation story as it's unfolding is there is this rhythmic, beautiful pattern, pattern being put forth by the author where it's, and God created this and it was good and God created and it was good and God created and it was very good. On, on the sixth day, God gets to what we would see if we understood more about Hebrew is we would see he's now, he's now bringing us to this climactic moment in creation. So yeah, like the sunset on Long's Peak is freaking beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. Like uh, there are some things that happen. I'm like, that is, that is incredible, God. How did you even manage to make the platypus? Like, how did you even have the creativity to think of that animal? But there is nothing better than people. They are the pinnacle of his creation. In the image of God, he created them, which means we are made to represent his DNA, to represent his character. 
male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first command given by God to Adam and Eve is to go have sex. And I know that's uncomfortable for you that I just said that in church, but it's true. It's true. Listen to me. The first thing that we're ever going to observe about this topic in Bible is that sex was God's idea and his design. And it was his good gift to mankind. It was not the devil's idea. It was, it was, not, it was not something that was uh, like, he, didn't, he wasn't surprised all of a sudden that Adam had desires for Eve. And he's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? No, he created this. He, he created all the body parts that were necessary for it. He created body parts that were made only for pleasure. He designed this in a way so that we would have desires and love and affection and intimacy with other people that are, that are beautiful and, and significant. And it was his idea. Sex is God's topics, not the world's. We, we have to know that. I will come back to that time and time again throughout this series, that this was his vision, not the devil's. We, we read on as we get into Genesis chapter two and, and the author kind of double clicks on the creation story. It says, wait, take me back to that moment where God created the man and the woman. And it says, Genesis chapter two, starting in verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Notice it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Now pattern is interrupted again and it's not good that man's alone. It's not good. So here's the first problem and God has the first solution. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We will, we will hone in on that phrase here in a couple of weeks. But what God is saying is there is not somebody, there is not a thing yet that I have made that can fulfill the commission that I've given Adam to do. So be fruitful, multiply, take the earth and subdue it, cultivate the chaos and make something beautiful. There's not a partner that's suitable for Adam right now that can fulfill that commission. And so like, you, you gotta just like have some creative imagination here, right? Because like, this is why horses I think are so awesome because they got close to being like a helper that was suitable for Adam to do all this beautiful, awesome stuff in the world. It's like, how about this horse? And Adam's like, nah, not quite. How about this labradoodle, Adam? You know, like it doesn't shed, it's hypoallergenic, like it's awesome. And Adam's like, yeah, God, but like, I, I, can't, I can't fulfill the mandate with it. Like, like I have a buddy who has a pet snapping turtle. Like I just like love in my creative mind where he's just like snapping turtle, sets it in front of Adam and Adam's just like, I don't know what you want me to do with this, God. Cool. Looks weird. Can't really do much with the whole creative mandate that you've given me to fulfill in the world, right? So then what happens? There's not anything that's suitable. 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man had, he made, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Listen, theologians will disagree frequently about what the first gift was to Adam. Was it a nap or was it a naked wife? <laughs> and I, like I can, see, I can see a lot of arguments for both, right? I just can. Personally, I would probably be on the nap side of, of first gift because he, he caused him to fall into deep sleep. But then also notice, listen, notice Adam's response. God wasn't like, oh my gosh, you're attracted to her? Gross. 
No, Adam goes, this at last is flesh my flesh, bone of my bone. Finally. Like it takes a lot for a man to go straight poetry when he first sees a woman, doesn't it? Like I know there's a romantic side in all of us, but when you're just like, oh my gosh, let me just start writing a poem for you right now. Right? And God's not like, are you kidding me, Adam? Gross. Like what are these? No. God designed sex. He made it. It's his topic. It belongs to him. It was his good gift to mankind. It was his idea to put desire in you. It was his idea to make it feel good. It was his idea, period. It all belongs to him. And God has designed rules around it. But we see this clearly. And we're not going to get all the way into it today. We'll save some things for the weeks to come. But the second thing that you have to know about this topic is that God's way is always best. God's way is always best. So listen, I've been 18 before. It was an awesome year. I remember it pretty vividly. I thought I was awesome. <laughs> I, like I just, I just was pretty certain in my 18-year-old self that I had the human experience figured out. You know what I mean? Anyone else been there? Yeah, everyone over 18 has been there before, right? Um, let's just take it off the, the, the awkward topic for a second. Let's just put it on the topic of like money. I remember when we first got married, you know, I was, I was like, man, we got to save it for a house. That was before the housing market went just bananas. And it was like a little bit more accomplishable back then, right? But um, save it for a house. So I, like, I, had, I don't think I was this nerdy. I just think I had that boring of a job, okay? Where I just like made this actuarial table and I started putting in, well, if we just save this much a month and if then we get the house and then, and then we start making this much extra payments, then by the time we're 30, you know, we could do this, uh, right? Okay, crazy, crazy. It's like just one step at a time, bro. Because then I was also a baby Christian at the same time. And I started reading in scripture that God's way is best when it comes to money. He says, hey, bring your tithe into the house of God. Like, well, hey, God, listen, Lord, that 10% is kind of the savings plan for the down payment for the house that you want us to live in one day. (laughs) So Lord, like, yeah, I want to do what you say, but I also want to like have a place to live. You know what I mean? Like, help me out, brother, right? And all of a sudden I had to be confronted with my worldview of money and I had to surrender it to the authority of scripture. And I go, no, I I want what you want for my finances, God. And I'll tell you this, tithing has been the single best financial practice and it makes no sense in the time, but it has been the best discipline that Katie and I have ever had in regards to our finances. You take the topic of of time, time. Like as a young married couple, we we were broke, 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 okay? Like no money. And it was like, you know what? I should pick up an extra shift every now and then. I'm a student during the week, should work some on the weekend. So I'm gonna start working on Sundays. And then again, I just get collided with scripture and I'm reading it right now in my reading plan about Exodus and Leviticus. And God is pretty strong about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy and keeping it as a day of rest. Now, I don't know if you've read the end of Exodus recently, but God's literally like, kill them fools that don't keep the, ex- the, the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now listen, that's the Austin Dykeman version, but it, it does say that, Okay. <laughs> It's like, if anyone works on the Sabbath day, you just put them to death because they're not one of us. Wow, that's extreme. So you're telling me, God, that you want me to render, surrender to you a whole day of my productivity and trust that you're gonna do more with six days and seven days of my worship towards you than I could do with seven days of working. And God's like, yeah, that's exactly what his word says. Trust that you have to embrace some rhythms in your life and you have to rest every now and then. And God has designed you to give a whole day of your week, the first day of your week to worship him. That's why you're here right now. That's not this commandment, but it is, but it is wisdom. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. I don't have the time. Never mind. We're not going all there. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. But there's wisdom in it. There's wisdom in taking a day and dedicating it to the Lord, setting your mind right, setting your values right. So listen, when it comes to all of these topics, pick your topic, parenting, 
marriage, sex and sexuality, money, time, all those things. God's way is best. God's way is best. This is my last point. Like God has given us rules for our flourishing. God has given us rules for our flourishing. He is not trying to rob from us and giving us rules, but he's trying to lead us into life. Here's the last point that I want to make if you want to write it down. We need to trust that every boundary is an invitation, not a deterrent into deeper joy, life, and pleasure. Hear me say it again. Every single boundary that God puts forth in his book, especially when it comes to this topic, is not to rob you from experiencing something, but he's trying to lead you into deeper life, deeper joy, and deeper pleasure. I know this because Psalm 16, 11 says it. You have made known to me, God, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Golly, what a prude, right? God is? No, he's trying to lead us into more full pleasure, into deeper life. He's trying to lead us away from pain. He's trying to bring us into his joy, into the fullness of joy. Jesus says, it's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Life abundantly. Life abundantly. Do you hear those phrases? God is not trying to rob you from anything by giving you rules. He's trying to usher you into the fullest possible version of life that there ever is, that there ever could be. That is what scripture is trying to elevate for you is that the way of Jesus, following after Jesus, does he have a lot of things to say on sex and sexuality? Yeah, we'll get there. We'll articulate clearly where we land on some issues. We'll get into the weeds about how we're going to be formed as people living in this world. We'll talk about how we're going to love our neighbors well and how we're going to stand for what is true. But the first and most important point that I could have you here at the front end of the series is that it's the Bible that's the path to life. Culture doesn't have it. The school system doesn't have it but the church does. And so we need to talk about it. My question for you before we leave today is do you want to walk on the path of life or do you want to keep trusting yourself for what you think is true, right, and good? Or do you want to humbly come before the scripture and say, God, test me. See if there's any anxious way or offensive way that's in me and lead me into everlasting life. There is a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction is what the proverb says. But God is ushering us into life and life to the full. That's the consideration for all of us this week. Would you stand and pray with me? God, I I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the goodness of the book to us today? God, would you just, would you help us see the life and the beauty and the redemption and the reconciliation and the hope that is found in your rules, God? You are not some cosmic killjoy trying to rob us from something or trying to keep us from experiencing something. God, you are trying to lead us into life. And so God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, would we as a church have the, have the empowerments to follow after you, to follow after your ways, to be led by you, Jesus. We love you and we need you. It's in your name we pray, amen. 